Welcome to the Where Humanity Meets Technology podcast, where we talk to business leaders about cybersecurity, data management, and advanced digital solutions to provide strategies to increase the profitability of your company. Now, here's your host, Maurice Hamilton, the CEO of Infinivate Consultancy Services. Hello, everyone. My name is Maurice Hamilton. I want to welcome everyone to our podcast. Uh, it's a podcast where we like to interview different business leaders out there. It could be uh, CEO, CTO, CIO, CSOs, and and uh, different uh, people with marketing. It could be uh, different variations of different type of businesses. And just to get a different perspective on how everybody's actually utilizing technology for the betterment of mankind or the betterment of humanity. Uh, so we want to thank everyone for joining. Today, we actually have Lou Cinco, who is the Chief Availability Officer for Q2 with us. So Lou, we want to thank you for joining with us today and, and uh, hope all is well. How are you today? Well, first of all, thanks for, for inviting me. It's very interesting podcast series. Honored to be a member and a, a guest. Uh, I've joined, I'm in Austin, Texas right now, and uh, since noon, we've been dropping about 10 degrees an hour, so we're prepared for a, a cold, cold winter snap here. Wow, that, that cold front that's going across the country with snow and blizzards way up in Minnesota and Duluth and, and uh, Wyoming, so... So you're right. We're gonna get the, we're gonna get the cold part down here in Texas. So so, so welcome, welcome. You know, I know it's warm cold outside, but it's gonna get worse. <laughs> but we all survive, right? Uh, yeah. So Lou, before I even get started uh, with the uh, with uh, with the podcast here, I, I have to ask out of curiosity, Chief Availability Officer. Can you actually give us a description and, and tell us a little bit about being a chief availability officer? I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with the cars in the background, but what, what is a chief availability officer? Yeah, great question. I've got the funniest title, but I've got really the coolest job at the company. Chief availability officer, we actually stole it from Salesforce a couple of years ago, but really it's one throat to choke for all the services that we're delivering to our customers. So it's the hosting team, the security teams and the risk and compliance teams that all roll into one group. That is all kind of in front, working with our financial institutions as they deliver the services to their end users. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Very, very unique title there. It sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, so uh, uh, congratulations on that. Uh, this is really, very Thank ingenious you. to somebody to come up with that one. And like you said, you got it for Salesforce, but it's still good to, to apply it. <laughs> yeah. So, so how about this? I like to begin with like uh, what I call the Genesis question and, and talk a little bit about your, your beginnings and how you actually got into this, this particular field. Can you actually give us a little insight as to what started, what's that one thing that planted that seed from you many years ago that actually say, you know what, I like this, I want to do this. Can you actually shed some light on that? Yeah, you, you know, it's, it's a great question. Um, we grew up on the farm, poor, poor, poor. So we, we fixed everything that broke. And, and uh, I just grew up in a household that we we used it until it broke and then we fixed it and we used it again until it broke and we used it again until it broke. And, and uh, meager means, and so we had to make everything last. And so we looked after things, but then when it, they broke, we, we weren't scared to take it apart and, and go ahead and fix it. So I learned a lot from my father, who was super, super handy guy. And, and so I was very hands-on as I went through I got lucky uh, with a couple of scholarships and, and grants. I was able to go to a big school, and uh, I, I'm a electronic, I'm a electrical engineer, so I, I was able to kind of put 
back in those days, it was actually building uh, PCB boards and mounting components on boards and designing things. And so it was very hands-on at the time. Uh, and I was right in the midst of computers coming in to help CAD CAM designs and we were able to automate a lot of this stuff. And so it really brought the two, the two pieces together where I enjoyed working with my hands, but I had a, a kind of affinity for math and, and kind of design and those kind of things. And so they came together and it really helped me through my school. Um, I was lucky in the late eighties where, where I was graduating, things were taken off. And so I, I, I got it. I had good grades and I was able to get a job before I, I graduated. So I wrote my final exams on Friday and started my new job on Monday. And, uh, and that really was the takeoff point. I, I landed with a company out of California um, that I moved 14 times for before I came to Austin. Wow. And, and so part, part of my, I think part of the, the success for me was being willing to take whatever the next thing was and, and, and uh, whether that meant a personal move or being thrown into the next problem. And they kind of threw me at the next messy room. And, and I got a reputation for being able to kind of walk into the messy room and kind of tidy it up and, and, uh, you know, the, the team was getting about 35% of what they wanted done. So we worked real hard. We got to 55 and then we got to 75 and then we got to 85 and then we got to 95%. And in my style and kind of what I like to do, uh, uh, you move me after we get to about 95 because otherwise we'll work just as hard and we'll get to 95.2 and 95.3. And there's a diminishing returns for the amount of energy we want to throw at it. You move me to the next messy room and you bring someone who's better at kind of optimizing uh, to follow me and, and they'll, they'll take it for that next incremental improvement. And, and I'm kind of a builder and I kind of like those messy rooms and I jump into the next one and away I go. So I was just willing to kind of, um, you know, follow whatever the company needed for me. And, and it worked out for me in that, um, you know, the next thing was always a bigger opportunity. The next thing always exposed me to some more. I was always able to learn something more. And as I got, kind of gathered and gathered, um, I had a lot of experience and a lot of learning that I was able to bring to the next next uh, you know job that they asked me for. Wow! So so you mentioned fourteen moves, and I thought I had a lot of moves in the years. You topped me with that one, fourteen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, now once the last move was down here to Austin, and uh, I tell you, uh, Austin's a great place to live. So I think this is the last move um, <laughs> in. Uh, you know, the quality of life here is awesome. And, and all the kids that were born here and, and the, enjoy their lives here. So I think dad's done moving now, but Keto uh, Q2 now has uh, so much, so much growth and so much opportunity. My job changes every year without me having to change companies. Okay. And speaking of that with Q2, I don't think we actually introduce our audience to what they, I mean, they can actually go look at it and see what they do, but let's talk about Q2 for a little bit and your role with Q2. Can you actually uh, talk sure. a little bit about that? Sure. Q2, uh, when I joined back in, in uh, well, it's about 10 years ago now, right, um, uh, was a, a startup. So I joined pre-going IPO. Uh, we had about a million users and about uh, uh, 240 servers sitting in the data center trying to serve online banking. Uh, today, uh, we have 23 million users sitting between uh, – uh, about 1,400 financial institutions, uh, and and now we we are more than just an online banking plat, uh, application. We are an actual platform that has several other uh, applications and pieces to it, where we can extend it and and we can we have a marketplace. We can do a lot of things. Um, Q2 really is a mission-driven company, and that's the important differentiator here. 
you know, we, we don't, we believe the best way to help the communities that we all live in is to help that financial institution that's in that community, help them whose own mission is to invest back into the community. And so, you know, we don't want to see a day when there's just five big banks that get to decide who, who gets a car loan, who can buy a house, who can go start a business. And, and we really believe that the local community financial institution is really the key to kind of the health of, of this country. When you think about uh, in 2020 and 2021, you know, there was about 420 million stimulus payments made for about $850 billion. And if we only had, you know, four or five big banks in the country, you know, California would have got it, New York would have got it, but the Midwest probably wouldn't have got it. And, and here, you know, the, that local financial institutions are everywhere, everywhere there's people and, and they were able to get the money to the people that need it most. Uh, no, go ahead. When you think about need, right? I live on a street. There's six, six homes on this street. Three of them bank with a customer of Q2s. Um, you know, we're in, we're in about uh, 47% of the top 100 banks in the country. Uh, we're in about half of the top 50 credit unions in the company, in the country. And so w- when you think about that, uh, stimulus was a great example of how important, you know, how important my team's mission is. When, you, when, when the stimulus payments came out, we saw overall on the platform 250% increase of logins, people looking for that check. Some customers had up to 700% increase in login activity. So people just looking for that money. They needed that money. And so, you know, nothing could be more important than us building the right capacity and making sure those services were up and ready for those people to get that money. It was obviously a big time of need. Wow. Uh, so when you think about COVID, right? Uh-huh. COVID, uh, all the banks and stuff had to close, just like every other business. Well, how do you get your money then, right? And so online access would, would have to happen, and it had to happen overnight. And so we really had to step up, even though we were dealing with the same issues every other business was. We had to step up and make sure that our our financial institutions could could you know deal with whatever was going to be thrown their way, so that they could service their members. Okay, so this is actually a really great segment to talk about that humanity piece right there. So if I heard it right, if I wrote this right, so the community is actually about 1,400 credit unions out there, right? 1,400, is that about right? 1,400 banks and credit unions. Yeah. Four, banks and credit unions. And, and so I, and I can see it. And I, one thing that caught my attention was you said that it's a mission-driven uh, organization where, where you look at that and say, our success is derived from the community being successful as well. So then when you actually gave the example of the uh, of the, the pandemic and said, we need to make sure that everybody has access to 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 see if they avail- check the availability, see if they apply or they can apply in order to get this. So I can see that really great humanitarian effort right there, just in that segment alone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I think financial wealth and financial well-being is a key to your success right? and making sure that people have access to, to money and services that our financial institutions provide every day, that, that's a key to their, their well-being. And, 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 you know, COVID threw a wrinkle at things. The big banks are coming in. And, you know, we don't want to see when one of the big banks comes in and puts a branch in and people put their deposits in from that local community. And then they take that and they go invest it overseas. 
We want to see that invested back in that community to start new businesses, to fund mortgages and car loans and kids going to school and, and help that whole community with its own money. That, that's really the key. And that that actually helps and instills in an organization or not organization, but a community to grow. Because back in, I was watching my wife and we had sat down, we were watching It's a Wonderful Life. And, and I went, you know, it's a typical holiday movies. And it were, the guy was, they were at the banks and they were actually a community bank. It was based off of that, that, that philosophy that we actually help people in the community. When he got in trouble, what happened? The community helped him out. And so I'm, right. I'm thinking about this and think about all the different, the great deeds, the great, uh, uh, the results of that actually being able to help that community uh, across the whole U.S. to actually get to another level because they have businesses and the businesses actually keep people employed and it's, it's reciprocal. So that's that's awesome that you you mentioned that. Well, and it's the right type of people that then are attracted to that mission-driven company. You know, we still have to have cool technology. Yeah. We still got to be doing cool with it, right? So you go, you got to get the right talent. But at the end of the day, we don't come to work to buy the CEO a third boat, right? We come to work because my neighbors are actually using the, our product in their banks that they bank with, and, and it matters. And so, you know, 72% of the employees with Q2 actually bank with one of our customers. So we it matters to us, right? And and when you think about the types of employees and the, that enjoy that kind of mission-driven company, uh, you know, we have literally 4,000, 5,000 hours of volunteer work, we, hundreds of thousands of dollars we raise for charities. We uh, Q2, you know, has a brand on a stadium here, the, the Q2 Stadium, which Austin FC, the soccer team plays at. But part of that deal, we also give back to several charity organizations within Austin, several innovation startups within Austin. And we really look for inclusive and diverse diverse types of investments in those charity programs. So it's not just our mission, but it's the way we, you know, way we attract talent. It's the way we keep talent. It's people that want to be part of this kind of, it's more than just making money to show up on, on a balance sheet. It is really about improving the communities that we all are part of. It sounds like it's your culture. Your, it's, it's our culture. Okay. Uh, and, and you mentioned that, and is that going to lead me into my next question? And when we think about automation and in your particular role, you have to continuously think about how we actually, how can we do it better? How can we do it faster? How can we actually reach our customers in a different level faster than not only in our competition, but you could say, how do we reach our customers where they are happy with the way you reach them? So when you think about that, what are some of the uh, elements or some of the, the steps that, that if you can share with us that you've actually taken or you will take to reach your customers and actually and deploying some kind of automation to your organization. Sure, sure. Well, we, you know, we, we have, you know, technology groups within my team that, that are always about moving to the next next new thing. And that's whether that's to, to reach new technical scale heights or to reach uh, new financial scaling, right? So do it cheaper or do it better faster. If you think about our, our, our growth, um, you know, logins have grown by 40% over over the last uh, over the last three years, or, or accounts have grown by 40%. Logins have grown by 80%. And so, things you know, for us, technical scale is a huge, huge issue. We got to keep always in front of it uh, um, because otherwise, it becomes an availability issue if we don't meet meet them. Um, but there's actually a team within my group called Continuous Improvement, and so it's not just looking at 
how our, you know, things when they fail, of course, we take them apart and we try to learn the lessons from those things. Some of them are technical solutions. Some of them are process solutions. Some of them are knowledge solutions. And we got to figure out, you know, how to, how to, how we could have done differently so we don't have that problem again, how we could have avoided it next time. But then we also take it to the next level on when we, when, even when we have a good outcome. What could we have done differently to have a great outcome? And, and so be always thinking about this continuous improvement. Our technology barely lasts 18 months. Everything that we do is out the door and new stuff comes in, in every 18 months. So our, we don't hire people with a specific knowledge of a specific thing. We hire people to have a trajectory of learning because that's the most important thing that we need. Because whatever you know today good but it's it's all out the door here in probably a year so you got if you have this kind of uh, methodology and kind of cadence of learning hey then then we know whatever turn comes up in the road you're going to be able to adapt to that and keep going and that that's probably the most important thing uh you know my team has an okr we manage the business with okrs my team has an okr of uh 20 hours of learning every quarter and uh and believe it or not that's harder than it sounds to do um, to make sure that all 200 people are putting in 20 hours of learning every quarter, including uh, management and leadership. You know, when you think about um, how we are trying to bring technology, um, you know, we're moving to the cloud, right? So we, we have what's called the distributed cloud format. So we have a couple of data centers that are active active and we split the traffic between them for resiliency purposes. We have about 12,000 servers in those, in those two data centers. And then we have a big footprint in AWS, a big footprint in Azure. So we're multi-cloud and we wrap all those environments, all 14 of those environments in one security and one compliance posture. So the customers don't have to worry about you know, where the data is and where the services came from. We manage that and it's all under the same security and same compliance umbrella. Uh, but that gives us a lot of flexibility then to, to decide on the next new thing where to put it. We, and we can choose whatever environment to put it in and we can change our minds in, in two months and move it and put it someplace else. So whether it's cost or scalability or speed or, or security, we can pick the environment that's best suited for it and then make our choices. But, but over time, we are migrating more and more of it up, up to the cloud. We have about 120,000 containers now up in the cloud. So, so I heard a lot of really good nuggets inside of that. And uh, the first thing, I, and I heard this from the beginning of the conversation, I think we said it on the re, during the recording here, when we talk about your DNA, your DNA is always learning a co continuous improvement. But now your organization also practices continuous improvement. There's always a way that we could do it better, faster, and, and cheaper, and actually make everybody more uh, happier. Uh, I also heard inside of that, too, that you have the ability to pivot whenever you need to pivot. And you, that pivot allows you to scale so we can move here, we can move here. So it makes your organization very dynamic there. Uh, so, right. Okay. And, and you got it. No, no, nobody, uh, we all have roadmaps and we all try to predict the future, but man, things are changing so fast. Expectations are going up so quickly that, that being able to pivot and foundationally build it as blocks and be able to change your mind and allow yourself to take on whatever the new opportunity is, whatever the new learnings are, to be able to incorporate that quickly and keep going is a real fundamental piece to how we operate. That's interesting. And I and remain, I had a chance this uh, past uh, earliest fall 
to visit the uh, Ford Motor Company plant in Dearborn, Michigan, which I really enjoy. I love process and I love to see it in action. Uh, one of the, the elements of our business, what we do is we actually do process improvement for companies where we actually come in and say, how can we actually help you automate your business? How can we imp implement uh, uh, IoT sensors? How can we actually go back and actually uh, make your systems, uh, your uh, uh, you not only have your cybersecurity, but you also have your your uh, physical security. How can we actually make it more automated so that way you can plan, you can protect your employees, protect your infrastructure, protect your IP? Um, so it remind me a little bit of that with the uh, with the process that you have in place here, because now you're looking at not just one particular component of it, you're looking at the whole organization. And as far as that, yeah, yeah, you know, part of that is the humbleness and the leadership around. Hey, we 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 had the right answers. We got to where we are because we were able to get to the right answers, uh, but be humble enough to, to say, Hey, we have to always pressure test that, that we don't know the next answer. And I know for leaders, you're kind of paid to know the answer, but how do you, how do you pressure test your, your, your assumptions? How do you pressure test your kind of unconscious bias that, that, you have all the information you need to make the next good answer. And so, you know, it, when you take leaders that year over year have, have produced results and, and have been promoted, have been rewarded for getting it right. How do you, how do you start this next new year, 2023 going, Hey, we have to rethink some of this stuff. And just because these things got us here, doesn't mean they're the right answers for 2023. So let's, let's be humble enough to um, dissect it all again taking more input, maybe have a wider lens on some of the things, make new best decisions that we can. And, and it's, it's a process of, of not being hung up on, on, on how you've been right in the past to inform how you're going to be right in the future. It's, it's really about, hey, you've learned a lot and you can make the right decisions with more information if you just allow yourself to be open to it. You know, I think there was a good quote that says the, the beginner sees lots of possibilities, the expert only sees one. And so how do you, how do you, how do you become an, a beginner all over again and just open your eyes to new options? Mm -hmm. Yep, you're right. I like that. That's a very, very good analogy. Um, so when, when you think about it, and this is more of the uh, looking forward to the future type question, uh, and, and I know, I know we uh, we kind of talked a little bit about blockchain. Lou, what would you say that you see that the evolution in the industry, what, what, where you see that is, is, is heading towards? And, and, and I always tell people, look, I can't give you a five-year prediction. I can't give you a, a seven-year because everything changes like in a one. If, if I say one to three years, I think I'll push it when I say three years. <laughs> you know? yeah. you know? where, where do you see it from your being an expert and, and uh, being the chief availability officer? How do you look at, especially in your industry, where do you think that we're, we'll see the evolution in the next one to three years? Yeah, you know, for, for, for the hosting team, it's really about reliance on key key partners to deliver more resiliency, more scale, and leveraging some of their infrastructures and some of their best, you know, back back when we started 10 years ago, we had to build it all ourselves. There was really no option. And so we had to have some really talented people design and build this stuff at the beginning. Today, we've gotten to the point where there was a lot of the smarts of this has been built into the software. So we don't need the infrastructure to be perfect anymore. And so we can go move and use public clouds to do a lot more of that. And and uh, they've come a long way. We're, we're an innovation partner with AWS, so we get to see things before they're public and we get to try them out and really kind of push the envelope on 
how to really do some of this uh, availability of our products in uh, by using them, where before we'd only trust us to do that. So I think I think there's the evolution of the public cloud has got to the point where we can actually move some of the most critical workloads up up there. And then really, it's all about security. You know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, and, and maybe I have a my office lens because I'm I'm sitting between 23 million users and 1,400 banks and credit unions moving about $2.5 trillion a year. So security is a big thing for me. We have 41 petabytes of data. So that's 41 with 15 zeros after of their data. And so uh, we're a big target. And and uh, and so we we have to not just think about security, but we got to live it, we got to breathe it, and we got to be ahead of the curve because security, one of those things, that if, if you're reacting to it, it's already too late. Yeah. And so I think I think how we look at security, we design to fail, so we know whatever we have work is protecting from the things we know about, but it's the things we don't know about that's going to get us. And so how do we design to fail? And and whatever we have in place is going to they're going to get through, but they still don't get to the goods. How do we detect anomalies? So hey, we're we're buttoned down for all the known bad guys, but if something starts acting weird. How do you let me know? So I have to assume it's bad until I prove it's not and, and, and get ahead of that. So the anomaly detection of things just acting weird is, is, a, is a purely indicator of maybe a problem. And then, and then how do we protect our data by not having our data? And it, it sounds almost oxymoronic when I say it like that. But if you think about, um, and this is the way we use blockchain, we take all the all the data goes into our application stored in a database we actually put it through a database driver pretty typical you know architecture but our database driver actually removes all the sensitive data and replaces it with tokens so if you look in our database all there is is tokens there isn't there isn't any sensitive data so if a bad guy gets in there gets to our database no sensitive data if an employee who has access to that database for, for whatever reason, has a bad day and he does something, there's no there's no sensitive data, just tokens. Then we take that data that we pulled out, we convert it, so we encode it into new data, we chop it up, we chop it up into bits, and then we we pass those bits into a private blockchain and we encode it again. So the blockchain then is not used as a ledger system like a typical blockchain under Bitcoin kind of thing, but it's actually used as a secrets database. And so we use we use blockchain as a way to store encoded, chopped up, and scattered across multiple blockchains the secret. And then when the application needs the data, it pulls that token out. We rehydrate the data back together, glue it back together, and, and then present it back to the application. So the data only exists in the application in memory when it's needed. It's never stored. And so if my people do something where we accidentally leave something open, we don't spill real data. If a bad guy gets in, Somehow, some way, even though we spend millions on security, somehow they got in there. We don't spill real data. Wow. And it sounds like when you take that data, because I, I followed that whole process when you said it and you kind of break it up in different bits. Would you actually go back and say, OK, now let's not we're not going to keep it in a centralized location. It's decentralized. And then after you pull it back together when you need the token with the with the uh, authentication codes. OK, exactly. So if you look at our database, no sensitive data, just tokens. And if you can figure out how to get into blockchain, right? Not easy today, but I'm assuming it's going to get easier tomorrow. But if you get into the blockchain, again, it's been encoded three times, chopped up the bits and So 
the, the real data is not there either. So the real data doesn't exist in our infrastructure, but it's it's rehydrated when we need it. And and the trick is to do this at wire speed so that yeah. you know the application isn't waiting on us. Yeah, I always I, I think they say you have your data. You have three types of data: your data at rest that's just there, your data in transit, and your data has just been processed. You know, when we when you go back and look at your data, so you have to make sure that when your data at rest, nobody can actually see that. But when you're trans, when you're transacting that data, you want to make sure that nobody can come back and any bad actors and kind of kind of grab it. You know. You know, another example is, you know, of course, being in front of banks and credit unions, taking a picture of your check for remote deposit. That's a big thing, right? Everyone does that now. Yeah. Well, last thing I want to do is store millions and millions and millions of signed checks. You know, I don't want to store pictures of signed checks. That seems that seems like a real bad thing to spill. So there's a technology that we use that takes that picture, puts it through what's called stained glass. And what comes out the other end is this picture that's all gobbledygook of colors. And the machine learning that we use to determine whether there's fraud or if this is, you know, if this, this is an appropriate check can learn from the colors of all it needs to learn from as if it was looking at the real check. So that way, our machine learning and our AI is all being trained and learned and can respond if it's a fraud, but I don't need to store the image of the actual picture check. So it's the best of both worlds. I can take more data, make the AI smarter, learn more about our customers, yet not put more things at risk because I'm not storing more sensitive data. Interesting. So, and I always ask this question to a lot of guys in, in security, like CTOs, CSOs, and I, I, I already, I think I already know the answer to this. If I ask you this question, what keeps you up at night? Is it going to be data and security? <laughs> it sounds like that's what it is. But when you look at that, it is. Yeah, but but I'm looking. Yeah, at this, 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 go ahead. I was going to say, you know, if you think about sixty percent of the vulnerabilities uh, uh, last year that were exploited were zero day, meaning that by the time they told you you had a problem, there was already an exploit out in the wild that was looking for it. So you had no chance. No matter how good you are at catching, no matter how good your hygiene is and keeping things up to date, if you didn't know you had a problem, yeah. there's no way to stop it, right? And so knowing that you're using software that may have holes in it that the bad guys know about before you know about, you have no chance of of just of doing the obvious of keeping it blocked out. You're going to get breached. It's going to happen. And so it's not, yes, it's just when. And so how do you design for that fact that if they get in, now what? If they get past that one, now what? If they get past that one, now what? And and you just do all you can to, to not have something that they want to take, right? And if they take mm -hmm. it, there's nothing lost. And so we're really focused on uh, you know, like every company, we, we have to get the data. The data informs the user experience. The data informs our customers. The data is really the magic that, they, that keeps all this working. But how do you take all this data and store all this data and not put the customers and yourself more at risk? Right. And then I think about that, what you just said there, because you have the data, but now you're actually capturing the user experience. Now you have to think about the analytics. It's okay. We've got all this information here. How can we actually take the user experience with the customer and take it up to another level based off of the behaviors and the algorithms and what we're seeing right now? Well, well you 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 read my mind because what we do today and it's about to be launched. And we're working on this right now. It should be GA here in a couple of months. But we have all the behaviors of the user as they navigate our application 
all the fields, what they entered, what time of day it was, what they did. We, we take all that behavior on the platform and we put that in a trade store. And then because we have a spigot into your spend, we know where you spend your money. So do you likely have, and we can develop traits from that spend. So with machine learning. So we know, do you likely have college age kids? Do you have a car loan? Do you, you know, what your income is? You, we can determine, do you like local restaurants versus chain restaurants? So we can, we can decide that. So we know how you use our platform and we know kind of traits about how you like to spend your money. We can put them together so when you log into the platform, you see a different experience than when I log into the platform. And so it's, it's really trying to be very personalized. And then the financial institution, you know, if you think about it, uh, back in the day when you walked into the bank all the day, I'd walk in as a kid at paper route. They'd go, okay, you're starting a paper route. Well, here's your, your, your youth savings account. And then I'd be going to college. Okay, that's a different thing. Then I'd be start my first job and I'd need a car and an apartment. And, and then all of a sudden I'd show up with a big grow in my arms. Okay, there's a family coming and there's this. Okay, now the kids are growing. Now I have to college and then I have to think about retirement. And the financial institution has all these different services and products they can help, help me with, right? Today, I haven't been in a bank in three years. I didn't know where my bank is, right? It's all online. And so they don't get to see me through my life journey. They have to infer it from the use patterns that they see and how I use, right? And so, so we, we help the financial institution try to understand where their customer is in their life journey to bring the best products they can to help them in their financial well-being. Wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. So we had a chance to talk about cybersecurity, the digital transformation itself, especially with the blockchain. The customer experience, which and that's a really great conversation right there because everything revolves around the customer, right? And then uh, right. then we talked a lot about automation too. So it sounds like you have a lot of good things going on. But so I have to ask you just a little different type of question there. And I, I see that big old engine back there with the looks like it's on a hoist. That doesn't look like a car engine. That looks like a more of a uh, like a semi truck or, or or a big pickup truck type engine. What kind of engine is that? Well, well, believe it or not, that engine right there is for that that car right there so that's that's my 89 lotus esprit it's uh my crack car so there's an engine in there that's been disconnected it needs to come out that one needs to go in and if you own a lotus you you love the experience of uh of uh it's a great car but you drive it you break it you fix it you drive it you break it you fix it so right now it's in the middle of being fixed and then if i can turn my screen here that engine right there uh -huh. is for uh, the Raptor that's sitting out in the driveway. So I have a heavily modified uh, Ford Raptor that there's my little guy, my six-year-old uh, mini copper of it. But but uh, uh, yeah, so, you know, being an engineer, they don't let me touch anything at work anymore. I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm managers, they don't trust me. So I come home and I, I grab tools and I work on work on my, my vehicle. Wow, this is pretty pretty amazing. Your your your, your continuous process that DNA is actually showing here with those engines. Now, yeah. think about the Ford Raptor. I think <laughs> Dilly have a seven hundred horsepower engine anyway. Don't aren't they really large? <laughs> they, they they are, but you know what? You can always make them bigger. <laughs> Every time I buy a new car, and I go, man, this is great. I I'm not going to touch this, and my wife laughs and laughs and laughs, and then of course I'm neck deep into being pulled all apart. Wow. Wow. This is amazing. Lou, this has been a phenomenal conversation. You've actually touched on all of my actually 
my sweet spots and the things I love to talk about here, even though this is what our business does, but actually you talk about it in, in a reality. This is real world. This is this is the real world when you actually, what you talk about with the, the, the blockchain and the data. I always tell people, a lot of people can go back and say, our most valuable employee, most value, most valuable asset is our employee. I said I can go back and agree with that, but I can also go back and argue with you and say I think it's your data. I think your data tells everything that you have. You know, especially the bigger organization, your data isn't invaluable. <laughs> it totally is. And you know, when you look at my job, right? My job's pretty easy. I do PowerPoints and I drink coffee for a living, really. Um, but my job is really to hire managers that people want to come work for. And, and re- represent that culture that we want to be. And I'm, I'm just, I'm lucky to be at a very special place where it's more about, it's more than just about making some money. It's about, uh, you know, the communities and the communities we service prosper. And, and so when you connect it all like that, you, you get kind of the best people and the best out of the people that uh, gives them something else to work for other than just the balance sheet. Wow. And look, that last sentence, sentence you said there, when we talk about the community and humanity, that is the most critical piece of this whole conversation to me, in my, my, yeah. my opinion. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to share that with, with, with your audience because it, it is, uh, you know, I've worked for a couple of companies now and it's where Earth to find those things come together. I agree. So, Lou, Lou, we want to thank you here. And this has been a phenomenal podcast on on our our model where humanity or I'm sorry, where technology meets humanity or humanity meets technology. You could switch it whichever way you want to say which one came first, chicken or the egg. Uh, But this is a really good aspect of actually utilizing technology for the betterment of mankind and humanity. I want to thank you for this amazing podcast here and uh, thank you for your time. And we really appreciate it. Well, great. Honored to be here. Have a great, happy holiday. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from your host, connect with Maurice on LinkedIn at Maurice Hamilton. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.